Well, good evening. Greetings to each of you again in the Master's name. And thank you for your well, warm welcome to us here. It's been a pleasure to be with you this weekend. I'm not nearly as nervous as I was last night, and that's in a, in a big part because I've learned to know you a little bit. So thank you uh, for that. Keep up the good work that I see going on here in your congregation. And the Lord bless you as you seek to follow and walk with him day by day, week by week, year by year, being a faithful witness in the community right here in your local city, town, community. The title of the message this evening is Discipleship, the Way of the Master. So the first message, in the first message we talked about the mystery of the gospel, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And in the second message, we talked about how that you are in Christ as a believer. So Christ is in you, but you are also in Christ. And as you are in Christ, that makes up the community or the body of the church. And someone mentioned something to my wife about whether I was going to have an, a picture of an Anabaptist view of the church. And what I have attempted to give you is not particularly an Anabaptist view of the church, but to the best that I can, a biblical view of the church. And that's the top picture there. The idea that God is the thing that we should, is, is what we were created to seek. Man is down here, and I erased the little man when I uh, drew Christ. But God reveals himself through his word. And so the word became flesh, and that was Christ. And so that's what the body represented. And then we enter into Christ, which is entering into his body, the church. We become part of a living organism which represents Christ in the world. And we are the body of Christ. If you would turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, I'm going to read a few verses there. You may have noticed when I've read some passages, I've kind of skipped around through the passages and haven't spent a lot of time reading the whole passages. And that's partly because of the amount of, of ground that I'm that I want to cover. I'm going to do that again tonight, especially in this passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, we're going to start in verse, we'll start at verse 7. Paul's writing here to the Corinthian church. And he says, But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. Ah, we've got another, we've got a mystery here. The hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory which none of the rulers of this age knew, for had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man things which God has prepared for those who love Him. But God has revealed them to us through His Spirit. Ah, the mysteries have been revealed. God has revealed them to us through His Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of man except the Spirit of man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. Who knows the thoughts that you're thinking besides God and you? What's going on in your mind, you know. 
But no one else knows except for God. And so what's going on in the mind of God is known by who? Other than the Spirit of God. And that Spirit is making those things, revealing those things to you as a believer. The Spirit of God is revealing the heart and mind of God to you. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged of no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. I'm going to stop there for a moment. And I'm going to tell you that that's a definition of spirituality. We have the mind of Christ. I want you to think about, just for a moment, Philippians chapter 2. If you want to think about what it means to have the mind of Christ, go to Philippians chapter 2 where it says, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. And then it gives you a list of things. There are things that have to do with humility and making yourself of no reputation and obeying to the point of death. That's the mind that Christ had. And we have the mind of Christ as believers. Think about in... Matthew 11, where Jesus says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And he tells you what's in his heart. For I am meek and lowly in heart. That's the kind of mind that Christ had. And here's saying in this passage here in Corinthians that we have the mind of Christ. But I want to go on reading because the chapter breaks there, but Paul's thought doesn't break. And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as to spiritual, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it, and even now you are still not able, for you are still carnal. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are ye not carnal and behaving like mere men? For when one says, I'm of Paul, and another, I'm of Apollos, are ye not carnal? Paul's saying that you haven't, reached a level of maturity that you should have reached yet. You're yet carnal. Your mind is not yet where it needs to be. And the way that I can tell that is by what I'm seeing in your congregation. What I'm seeing in your congregation is division. You're being divided. The mind of Christ doesn't divide. And so when I look at you and I see these divisions happening in your congregation, then I realize that you're not yet spiritual as you should be. You're yet carnal. Now I'm talking to you as if I were talking to the Corinthians. I'm not telling you that's what I saw this weekend. I'm telling you that's what Paul is saying to the Corinthians. But we need to think about where are we? Are we divisive? Are we having trouble getting along in our brotherhood? If we are, where's that coming from? What's that spirit? Is that the mind of Christ? Is it the humble, lowly, meek, servant heart that has no reputation and doesn't need to defend itself and doesn't need to get stirred up when someone wrongs us or slights us or harms us? Where's that that divisive attitude coming from? Paul's saying it's coming from carnality, not from spirituality. 
Let's move on ahead now to verse 9. For we are God's fellow for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, you are God's building. According to the grace of God which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and other builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it, for no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire. The fire will test everyone's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone work, anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet as through fire. Do you not know that you are the temple of the Holy the, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? We'll stop reading there. Key verse here. There's a foundation been laid. Paul says, I laid a foundation. There can be no other foundation laid that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. There is no other foundation for the church. There's no other foundation for spiritual life. There's no other foundation can be laid for us as believers than the foundation of Jesus Christ. And Paul said, I have laid that foundation as a wise master builder. And now others are building on that foundation. And what are you building with? What materials should you use? If you look at this passage, you say, well, we better be using gold, silver, and precious stones, right? Because they're the things that aren't going to get burned up by the fire. So what are those gold, silver, and precious stones? Okay, I'm going to leave that question with you for now because there's something else I want to get to, and that is how would be tested? What is this for the day will declare it, and it will be tried by fire, it will be tested by fire? Well, that word day there in the Greek is a word that kind of has two meanings. One meaning is time, and the other meaning is dawn. So dawn is like coming to light, and time is a period, a section of time. And so time will bring to light what you have built with. You see... As time goes on, how we build will become manifest. It will become visible what we have done and how we have lived and how we have built in the kingdom of God, whether it will last or not. What's fire? Well, fire is a change of condition. So if you want to change some... It's not the right way to say it. When you, when you light a fire and you burn up some wood that wood changes in its composition. The fire changes what the wood is. It changes its makeup. So, what does fire have to do with this? Well, fire is going to be change. It's going to be the changes that you face in your lifetime. You will face change in your lifetime. And will your beliefs, will your faith, will the things that you have built in your life be able to stand the test of change that's going to happen to you? The more stable something is, 
the less likely it is to burn, the more stable its composition. The reason why gas ignites so easily is because it's very fragile in its composition. And so as soon as a little bit of heat gets in there and starts vibrating the, the molecules, they just blow apart all at once. As soon as one starts, it just triggers them and they all go. And that's an explosion. And wood, a big chunk of wood, is a lot slower to break down because it's more stable. And so if you want to start a wood fire, you start maybe with some paper and some real light twigs so that that more stable um, properties can, can receive more heat. And as they receive more heat, then it breaks them down and, they, and it burns it up. And it changes its... But if you've got gold you want to light on fire, you're in for some real work because it's going to take a tremendous amount of heat and then it probably won't burn. It'll just the impurities will burn off and you'll be left with something pure because gold is very stable. So I talked this morning about how the, the core of our culture and our community is our belief and our identity. And if our belief and identity are very stable and very grounded in what is true, then we will not be changed by time and by fire, by the, by the changes that we face. And so we need to have that, not only do we need to have that sure foundation, we need to build with things that are stable, things that are true. And there's a reason for that. It says, I think the, I'm reading from the New King James here, but I think in the King James it says, for we are laborers together with God in that passage. It says that we are, we are builders together with God. So, so what is God really concerned about? You know, we talked about the knowledge of God throughout uh, these messages, and, and God wants us to know Him. And I really, really love that word participation. That idea of participation is something that is so vital to relationship. You know, if you're in a relationship and the other person just won't participate, it's just not much of a relationship. And, you know, God has done so many things for us, but He expects us to participate. He expects us to engage in that relationship. Because you, I don't know if you noticed the word in there but, that Josh read, but it said diligently add to your faith. You see, that word diligently has to do with us doing something. It has to do with us engaging in that relationship. And God's given us all these wonderful things and all those blessings that come down through there. And, and, and then the, uh, Peter says, and then besides that, besides all these things you're given, then you participate. You participate with God. And, and that's part of what we're talking about. But what, how does God want us, what's, what's important to God that we participate with Him in this building? What matters to Him? Well, God wants us to know Him, right? But, let me try this other marker. God wants us to know Him, but a hundred years from now, if the time still lasts, God's going to still want people to know Him, right? So God wants people to know Him across... Oh, that pen's not better. Oops. Across the stretch of time. So there's a beginning and there's an end. 
And this line represents time. But God Himself, the truth, will span time. So we're going to give truth a capital T. The reason we're giving it a capital T is because we want it to represent God Himself, who is the truth, as in Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. So God is concerned about people knowing Him across time, all the way across time. So let's say that you're here. This is you. This is your lifespan. Okay? That's your generation. We're going to put that up there, and we're going to say that's your generation. And I'm going to read you a verse. For David, Acts 13, verse 36, For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. Now this is an argument um, in... um, This is an argument by Paul to the Jewish leaders about the resurrection of Christ. And David wrote this quotation that he makes about, that's in the verse before, is a quotation of that his body will not see corruption. And so Paul is making an argument to the Jewish leaders that David was not writing about himself. He was writing about someone else who was Christ. And, but I want, to, I want us to catch something about David in this. So the, the context is about Christ. But what it says about David is that David served the purpose of God in his generation. So there was a time period that David lived. There was a generation that David lived. And David served the purpose of God in his generation. But you see, time changes. Because David, part of that serving that purpose was that he slung a stone in a Philistine, right? And, you know, today, stone slingers are dump trucks. So, times have changed. And God doesn't want you to sling stones at a Philistine, does he? No. (laughs) So, we're living in a different generation, aren't we? And because generations have moved on and God's purpose has has changed for us. His purpose isn't the same purpose that he had for David. And, you know, come to think of it, you live, you know, maybe, maybe your dad is still alive, but I bet he probably has told you stories from before you were alive that the conditions were maybe different than they were when, when you grew up and went to school. And I saw a little funny that somebody posted here recently about, you know, a picture depicting when the stories that my parents told about going to school and it had to do with, it it was like these knights in armor and they had their axes and they were looking around for danger and this is how our parents described, you know, their walks to school, something like that. And and I told the family, I said, well, I should, you know, post them back and say, well, yeah, but it was uphill both ways too Uh, (laughs) because they were on level ground. Um, But, you know, they tell you these stories about times that were different. Like my, my mom tells me stories, has told me stories about when she drove the horse to, to do farm work. The horses were long gone from farm work by the time I came along. But my mom experienced that, and so my mom's time was different. And my grandpa told me stories even, even before that, and, and that was different too. And so time changes. Now, do you think that 
that, you know, we've experienced a lot of technological changes in the last 20 years. Do you think there'll be more changes in the next 20 years? It probably will be. And, you know, we'll be fading off the scene, maybe I will be, in 20, 25 or so years. But things are going to be different. So you have your father, and you have your grandfather. Your children, and maybe grandchildren. Now what have we just done? We've just expanded the amount of time. From the time that your generation is here on earth... From when your grandfather started, when he was born, to the time when your grandchild dies, is say four or five generations of time. So what is happening when what is what what does God want to happen in your generation? Why what is important about this graduation of time and how do you fit into that? Well, God wants truth to be passed across time. And the way that He wants that to happen is for each generation to teach, to pass on to the next generation an understanding of who He is in a way that can help them to know Him into the next generation. And on and on and on. And so then God is known across time. And we are builders together with Him in that process. Now isn't that a glorious purpose? We get to show people who God is. But time changes, but truth doesn't change because a shepherd boy said, With my whole heart have I sought thee. The Lord is my shepherd. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. So truth doesn't change. So there's something that can anchor us as time changes and as, um, as time moves on and as life changes. Because not only do we experience things that are different in the world around us, we also experience the difference of, of generations who come and go. And so people leave the scene who have a lot of wisdom. And I've thought before as, as older men have passed away and all the knowledge and, and things that they had acquired during their lifetime and all of that goes to the grave. And who's going to pick up? Who's going to, who's going to carry knowledge into the, to the next generation? They just went off the scene. Who's, who's going to carry the truths that they knew into the next generation? I'll just say this. Change is not the problem. Change is the test. You will face changes in your life. You're guaranteed to face changes. There's two different ways that we face changes. One is changes we choose to make, and another is changes that come to us. When you choose to make a change, be sure of this before you make the change that it's going to take you closer to God, not further from Him. 
Because those are changes that we have control over. And then the second is changes that come to you. Prepare yourself so that when those changes come, you know where you're anchored. Jesus has the answer to this thing of change. If we know Him, we will be anchored to what is true. There's a passage that has become very dear to me in Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy 5, Moses gives the, new, the Ten Commandments a second time. And near the end of, the, and near the end of Deuteronomy 5, God kind of just bears his heart. It just seems like God just lays out his heart. And he says this, Oh, that there were such a heart in them that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always, that it might be well with them and with their children forever. And so you see, he, just, he, wants, he wants that commitment of the heart to fill their lives and to change them and to connect them to Him and so that it will carry into the future forever. So that the following generations would all know Him. And then it goes into Deuteronomy chapter 6. And I'm going to start reading at verse 4 and read to verse 13. I better go to Deuteronomy 6 before I start reading. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So it shall be when the Lord your God brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you a large and beautiful cities which you did not build, houses full of good things which you did not feel, hewn out wells which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant. When you have eaten and are full, then beware lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. You shall fear the Lord your God and serve him, and you shall take oaths by his name. I'm going to stop reading there. I want to mention something to you. I've been taking phone calls for Christian Aid's billboard evangelism for five years, five and a half, five and a half years now. And I did some quick calculations the other day, and I have talked to around 6,000 people around the country during that time period. So, rough calculation, 6,000 people. I have not found one person, not one, that I want to trade places with. You are sitting in a chair tonight, and I want you to understand this, that you are sitting in a chair tonight that is so valuable. It is the envy, not just of our country, but of the world. If you live in the United States, you're the envy of the world. but you are the envy of the United States. They don't know it. They don't know that you are the envy because they don't know what you have. There's a, a friend, a couple, that's been coming to our church the last little while, and he was, he was from communist Cuba. And so he knows what a communist regime is like. 
and what it's like to grow up in that and to grow up in a poor section of that. And he went to, was able to go to Venezuela, and from Venezuela he hiked to the United States. And it nearly cost him his life. He started out weighing 130 pounds, and he got to the United States weighing around 100. Walked most of the way, took boats some of the way. He came into the United States. He learned to know some people here in, or in the Harrisonburg area. And through connection with a friend to a friend, they ended up coming to our church. And they've been coming now for almost a year. And he wanted to come to our men's meeting the other night. And we had a little bit of, we had a, a sharing time at our men's meeting. And um, he said this. He said, if the people in your community knew what you have at your church, you would need a field to preach in. You would need a big field to preach in. I'm telling you, I'm not telling you that to lift anybody up. I'm telling you that to tell you that you have something special. Do not cast it away carelessly. You have a heritage of faith. When you have come into the land and you've received all the good things from the past people who had a faith in Jesus Christ, and you've received all those things and they've come to you, do not forget your God. There are four things in this passage that tell us how to pass on faith. And I'm going to talk more about them in a little bit. But I'm just going to give you a quick peek at them. In verses 4 through 7, it talks about a preeminent love for God that flows into every part of your life. It says that you will love the Lord your God, and as a result of that love, you will do things in every aspect of life in relation to that. In verse 7, it says that you will have a relationship with your children. It doesn't say you'll have a relationship, but you do have a relationship. And you will talk of them with who? With your children. With those with whom you have relationship. Verse 7, it talks about communication. You will teach them diligently. Teach them about the truth and about how it relates to life. In verses 8 and 9, you have monuments. On your hand, between your eyes, written on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. They will be a sign. Those monuments will be a sign. And they'll be applied to the common things of life. You need all four of those things to effectively pass on faith. This passage is about the family in Israel. This church is a family in the people of God. If you want to effectively pass on faith in this family, you're going to have to have those four things. Now you might wonder why I'm using the Old Testament, but the New Testament has the same pattern. Matthew chapter 28. In verses 16 and 17, Jesus is with his 11 disciples. And Jesus came, or the disciples were together, and Jesus came to them and saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. So this has traditionally been considered to be about evangelism. But I submit to you tonight that it's about discipleship. 
It's about discipleship in the sense of that you are not only making disciples, but you are teaching those disciples. And so you are maturing those disciples towards a closer walk with God. So this passage is really about discipleship. It's about making people disciples of Jesus Christ. Not just in the sense of them becoming disciples or becoming Christians, but rather about them being matured in Christ. Following Him and being matured in Him. Jesus says, and you know, I could, I don't have time. You can go down through there and you can look at all those components are in that Great Commission. All those com- components that I told you about. Discipleship is the means to the end. Jesus said, even to the end of the age, even to the end of the time, I'm with you. I'm with you for this purpose, even to the end of the time. And so it is, Jesus is saying that this is the means by which you will get to the end. And I will be with you to do that. And also mean it in the sense of the pun, that it's the means to the end. It's the means to pass on faith. It's the means to the end of passing on faith, to the end of our purpose. See, our purpose is to show people God and to help them to understand who He is. And so discipleship is the means to that end. It's the means to that purpose. So what does discipleship look like? In Matthew 10, verse 25, Jesus says, It is enough the disciple be as his master and the servant as his Lord. Now this is different than a student. So we're not just talking about teaching. We're talking about something that's deeper than teaching. We're talking about someone who has learned to emulate or be like the person that they are following. A disciple is not a student. I mean, he is a student, but he's more than a student. He is someone who wants to be like his master. I talked about that the first night in relation to... um, in relation to us being disciples of Jesus. But I think it's important here that we understand that if you're going to be a disciple and a discipler, that you're going to have to recognize people who live godly lives and you're going to have to pattern your life after them so that you can be like them. It is not enough to just listen to their teaching and continue to do the things that you're doing. You have to change what you're doing to pattern your life after those who are successful in their Christian faith. So so being a disciple has this idea of emulation or copying. Now the children were up here playing church, apparently. But they were not copying you. They were imagining that they themselves were doing church. And as they imagined that they were doing church, they were acting out the things that they had seen. Not the things that they had particularly seen an individual do, but they'd seen you all do collectively. And so they were acting out what they understood to be church. And that's vital for the development of their thinking and mind because they begin to recognize the things that are necessary for church to happen. And that's how a child develops its mind. 
It's not copying you in the sense of mimicry, but rather it's living out, attempting to live on their own to live out what they see others doing. And so this idea of emulation has the idea of finding people who are successful in their Christian lives and then patterning your life like that. It doesn't mean that if you're a disciple of Jesus, you wear sandals and a robe and walk a dusty road. It means that you see his life and you see how he lived and you emulate that in your own life. And maybe you see a brother or sister that you highly admire and you think, wow, you know, someday I would like for my Christian life to be the same kind of expression that that I see in them. Well, listen to what they say, but start doing the things that they do and maybe asking questions like, why, why do you do that? You see, Paul understood this very well. And he talks about it multiple times. One place is in 1 Corinthians 11, chapter 1, where he says, Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. So he said, I'm following Christ. I know what Christ was like. I saw Christ. I spent time with Christ. Now you follow me as I have emulated him. Now you emulate me. And here's another one that he wrote, 2 Timothy 2, verse 2. And the things which thou hast heard of me, Paul speaking to Timothy, among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Now there were three generations in that first verse that I read to you, and there was four in this one. The things that you have heard of me, thou commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. There's four. Four generations of people who are emulating the faith of um, those that they learn from. And then later in 2 Timothy chapter 2, he says this. And it would be really interesting to me to know which Greek word this is for no, okay? Because I don't know. But thou hast fully known my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, patience... Thou hast fully known these things about Paul. Paul said to Timothy, you have fully known. Timothy must have spent time with Paul. How did he know all those things about Paul? Well, you know, doctrine and manner of life, that would be fairly easy, right? But how about purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, and patience? You see, those are, those are spiritual fruits, Timothy must have spent enough time with Paul to really know his heart. And then by really knowing his heart, Paul was able to say to Timothy, you know, you know this stuff, Timothy. Now you can just take that to somebody else. Now I'll give you a a rough hypothesis here. Well, no, first of all, I need to say this. Spirit. Spirit is a huge part of passing on faith. Jesus had a spirit about him. Paul had a spirit. Timothy had a spirit. It was the spirit of God. We've got to have the spirit of God. And I want to bring that up because these things that Paul communicated to Timothy 
were things of the Spirit. He communicated things that related to what Paul's heart was all about and what Christ's heart was all about. So in our discipleship, we need to have the Spirit of Christ in relating to people. It's vitally important. Oh, yeah. I almost forgot where I was going with that other point. And that was that... So, so this is the model that started the early church. It was this idea of emulation, okay? And I taught an early church history class last year, and I love history in the sense that I love the knowledge, but I don't like the digging. Um, so I want to know the history, but I don't want to spend the time it takes to learn the history. Um, but this forced me to, to really study some history. And, and this was really the model. This, this idea of emulation was really the model in the Christian church for the first 200 years. And in about the mid-200s, there was a shift in the early church. And the churches started to look to the bishops for spiritual direction. Instead of really doing a thing of emulation, it became more of a thing of, of teaching and just doing what the bishops said they ought to do. Doing what, and, and the bishops in that day were the pastors. There was not, it, it was somewhat different structured than what we think about a bishop today as being somebody that's maybe over several churches or whatever, but the bishops of that day were men who were, were pastors over one church. And so they, the people started, instead of, of, of trying to emulate, they more just looked to them for, for the message. What's always made me wonder for years, what exactly was it that made the church susceptible to the idea of Constantine taking over? And I'm just giving you a hypothesis, okay? But something changed in the mid-200s in the way that people thought about the way that Christianity was lived out. Instead of this idea of emulation, it became more of an idea of the the leaders digging into the Word and finding the answers and just giving the answers to the people. Now, that's a hard hypothesis to, to push too far. And the reason is because these people were suffering for their faith during this time, during this time period. And even right up until the time of Constantine, they were suffering for their faith. So... I'm giving to you, it to you as, as, as seeds of thought. But those first couple generations of the Christian church were very focused on emulation, on following, on discipleship, discipleship of one another. I don't know that that was the reason why they were willing to accept Constantine. But you're not in Paul's generation and you're not in Timothy's generation. You're in this generation. And God has placed you in this generation for a purpose. And it's the purpose of passing on faith in Him to the, to the next generation, to those around you, to strengthening them. So at any point during your lifespan, you will have contact probably with around three generations. So just about always in a room of people, there are three generations of people who 
can understand and um, engage in spiritual things about three generations of people. So at any given point in your life, if you have reached an age where you're accountable and start to understand spiritual things, you have two generations of people that you can interact with. So if you want to pass on faith, you've got an opportunity. If you're young, you've got an opportunity to learn from two whole generations of people before you. If you're older in the faith, you've got an opportunity to touch two generations beyond you. And you will have an effect, your life will have an effect for the future. There were two young ladies that were killed about the year 200 for their faith. They were both in instruction class. They were about 20 years old. One was a noble woman and one was a, um, one was a servant. One was a slave girl. And they were, they were killed by wild beasts. Um, and uh, the interesting thing about this story, and one of the reasons we have it, is because this woman, uh, this noble woman, was able to write. And she actually wrote about some of her time in prison and some of the time it was leading up to her martyrdom. And so we, we have this story um, about what happened. And then I think it was Tertullian uh, finished, kind of finished the story about her martyrdom and, and what happened, what occurred that led up to her death. And uh, there were some really interesting things about uh, their death, their deaths. They were... Um, they were killed by a wild heifer, or at least mauled by a wild heifer. And this noble woman, when, when they were put into the arena, uh, she was hit first by the animal, and, and it knocked her down, it tore her dress, and it knocked her hair loose. And her hair came down. And her hair down was a sign of mourning. And so she called to the crowd and asked for a pen to put her hair up. Because in her death, she did not want to be in mourning. She wanted to be in joy. Now, why am I telling you that story? Because the things that are remembered are what you give your life for. The most known people are the people who gave their lives for notable things. Jesus spent about three years in ministry... He spent that time with a, a group of men who were kind of disillusioned at best and not too sure what they were about. Uh, or maybe it's the other way around. Not too sure what they were about at the best and disillusioned at the worst, but definitely weren't on track with him right up to the crucifixion. And even after the crucifixion, they didn't know what was going on. And Jesus spent three years with those men. And every one of those men, besides Judas, was willing to give his life for what they saw in those three years. Jesus was a shepherd, and his sheep knew him. And they knew that what he gave his life for was worthwhile. Jesus had this small group of men that were with him. And from that small group of men that expanded out until Christianity is known 
all over the world because of an uneducated carpenter and a few disciples who were uneducated men and the power of the Holy Spirit working in them, that discipleship of those few men became a powerhouse that changed the world in 300 years. What could God do if we had that kind of powerful discipleship in our churches? That kind of life-changing discipleship where we were seeing lives that were empowered by Jesus Christ and were being fully given to Jesus Christ and were being poured out, as Paul said, for Christ, suffering for Christ, willing to do anything for Christ. And we had generations coming behind them who saw that and wanted it and said, I'm going to emulate those men, those women, and I'm going to follow them. And then they developed faith. And they reached behind them and brought people along. Because see, that's what Paul did with Timothy. He found Timothy and he said, come with us, come with us. And then they spent time together. Deuteronomy 6, verse 2, this is backing up a little bit. That thou mightest fear the Lord thy God and keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command thee, thou and thy son and thy son's son, all the days of thy life, that thy days may be prolonged. I want to talk just a little bit about this thing of a preeminent love for God. Verses 4 through 7 of Deuteronomy 6. Genuine and free from hypocrisy. We need to be free from hypocrisy. We need to be people who are genuine. There is a longing in our world for people who are genuine, people who are real from the inside out. People who are not afraid to open their life to others. We need to be people who are an open book to those around us. People who, because the only reason that I should hide what's in my heart is because it's different from what's on the outside. It's the only reason I should hide my heart. Now, we all know that we fail. So what do we know when somebody acts like they don't fail? We know that they're not real. And if we know they're not real, then we know that they can't be trusted. So we got to be willing to make ourselves vulnerable by opening up our hearts and letting people see our hearts. Is what you believe true? I hope you say, yes, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and I believe that that's true. We have nothing to be afraid of. You have no question to be afraid of. Jesus will always take you to the truth. So if we have a preeminent love for the true God, we have nothing to be afraid of, no question to be afraid of. We should be happy when people ask questions. And if we don't have the answer, we know where to get it. And we should be preparing ourselves and engaging ourselves with answering questions for ourselves so that when they do ask those questions, they say, yes, I know what you're talking about. I used to wonder that same thing myself. And you know what? Jesus gave me the answer. 
I found the answer in Him. Why don't you come to a Bible study? Why don't you come to church and see what I found? And I've already talked about this, about how it's a change of being, but I want to talk about a verse that we often think again about evangelism. Acts 1.8 But you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. We're going to be witnesses for Christ, right? But we're going to be witnesses. We're not going to do witnessing. We're going to be witnesses. Which means that your being, the life that you live, will be a witness. And as a result of that, you will be witnessing. So you will be doing witnessing. You'll be doing it, but it's not because you're doing missions. It's because you are a follower of Jesus Christ, and you are showing Him in the world because of who you are. Relationships. The one who is born in your family. We're talking about your church family here. The ones who are of the same blood, who eat at your table. Those who are part of this family. Those who eat at this communion table. Common union table. How are your relationships? Do you have relationships that you can communicate in this brotherhood? In this common union? Do you have freedom to communicate? This is a very powerful verse in Proverbs chapter 23, verse 26. My son, give me thine heart and let thine eyes observe my ways. There has to be a heart connection to communicate truth. We have to develop heart connections. We have to develop connections that go deep to be able to communicate truth. There's this great little pamphlet called To Win Your Child's Heart that Beside the Still Waters put out here a while ago. If you want one of them, contact me. I was thinking about bringing one along, some of them along, and I forgot. But it talks about how we reach beyond just the surface obedience of a child and, and reach down and gain and win their heart. And by winning their heart, then we have an open avenue by which we can express the things that we want them to understand. This verse kind of encapsulates that. My son, give me thine heart and let your eyes observe my ways. And there's two aspects to that. One of them is that there's this father here. And this father is saying, son, please, I want to have your heart. I want to get into your life. I want to be part of your life. Give me, give me your heart. Won't you give me your heart? And you have this son that he's appealing to. And, and, and so now place yourself in the position of the son. What do you want to do with this loving father? Do you want to give him your heart? Do you have this loving brother in your church that you can tell he loves the Lord and he knows how to live? Do you have this person in the church and, and he wants to have your heart because he's communicating with you? And, and you can open up and you can say, yeah, you know, I want to have this relationship. I want to give him my heart. I want to trust him. That's really what a big part of this is about. It's about trust. It's about a willingness to make ourselves vulnerable and, and open ourselves up and be able to communicate in a way that Helps us to understand things. Helps us to grow in our understanding. 
I have four sons. They are my beloved sons in whom I am well pleased. I love my sons. They are all very different. All my sons are, are different. And I'm just so glad that God gave me four different sons because they each bring something beautiful, sometimes hilarious, sometimes just fun into our home. Four different sons. You know, as a father, it's my goal to help those four different sons minister in the kingdom in four different ways. And I want my sons to know that they are my beloved sons in whom I am well pleased. And you know, maybe they're a little bit embarrassed right now, but they'd be really angry if they thought that I didn't really mean that. If I didn't act like that at home. If I came here and said that across the pulpit, but I didn't act like that at home, they'd be really upset. That would be the last person they'd want to give their heart to. But it might be that if they really know that, and I really show that at home, and I really show that with my life, that they might be secretly pleased, even if they're a little embarrassed about that. Do you want to win your child's heart? Win it every time you communicate with them. Win it, win it every day. You want to win the brother or sister in your congregation? Win it every time you have interaction with each other. You're winning their heart. This isn't just dealing with the problem. This is about winning their heart. I'm going way over time. And I'm sorry about that, but we're going to go anyway. This is not original with me. I got this from Val Yoder. But uh, here's the life of a person, okay? And we come to church, and we want to, and our first interaction at, at, at church is that we see the landscape. And we like to see a pretty landscape. So we come to church, and, and everything looks good, and, and the landscape is just looking great. So we're happy. Let's not mess this up. Let's be real careful with this. and Let's not mess it up. But maybe a little bit of grass gets rubbed off somewhere and there's this little patch of, of bare ground that maybe doesn't look so good. And so we kind of like throw some seeds in that direction and just kind of avert our eyes and, and, and pray for rain and sunshine and just hope that, that that will grow some good green grass here in a little while. But we wonder, you know, why aren't there any fruit trees? Why, why isn't there any fruit coming up in, in, in our landscape? You know, it's, it's, it's beautiful to look at, but, but it really doesn't have much sustenance. We're kind of hungry, and we wouldn't mind if there was some fruit around here. And 
well, but then we'd have to mess up the landscape, you know, to plant those trees and stuff. And so um, we, oh, oh, you know, that bare spot of ground actually has some thorns in it. I didn't notice that before. You know, what, what, what are we going to do about that? You know, but we do have a pretty landscape overall. And, you know, those, those people out there in the world that really have thorny lives, you know, they really ought to, it really ought to be appealing to them to come and, and enjoy our landscape, you know, because we're, you know, at, at, least, at, at, at least less thorny than they are. But we're only on the surface. We're only on the surface of who we are as people. Each one of you is made in the image of God. That is a gold chest. That is a piece of gold. Deep down in every one of you is a beautiful piece of gold that's worth infinite value. And it's the image of God. And are we going to nurture that ground until we find that deep gold? Well, you know, if you start digging just a little bit, you know, the first thing you're going to run into is dirt. And we don't like dirt. But you have some dirt. You've, you've had some dirt in your life in the past, haven't you? Let's be honest here. We've had some dirt. Maybe we still have a little dirt that needs some places that need some polished up. So if you start digging a little bit, can you identify with that person and say, you know what? Yeah. I, 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 have, some, I have some dirt too. We both have dirt. Let's work on it together. Let's move together. Well, you dig around a little bit in the dirt, and you're thinking this is going pretty good, but you're not finding any gold, and instead of hitting gold, you hit rocks. You hit hard places. You hit difficult things. What are you going to do with those difficult things? Ah, this isn't worth it. This isn't worth it. Is it worth it? Is it really worth it? You're going to have to show them that it's worth it if you're going to be able to work through those rocks. Maybe you can't move those rocks. You can't, actually. It's the work the Holy Spirit's going to have to do. But you can be right there beside. And you can tell them about how you found something that's worth digging for. It's worth surrendering yourself to. And you might help them to find a crack where they can wedge in a bar themselves and start loosening that rock. And you can pray for them. And you can pray with them for the Holy Spirit to come and lift that rock out and reveal the gold that's underneath. My point is, the discipleship gets messy. If you want to, be a, if you want to make disciples, you're going to encounter messy stuff. But you were messy too. And God was willing to work with you and help you along and lead you along and teach you and grow you. And other people were too. And other people have spoken into your life and ministered to you. And I'm saying that we need to have a revival of that kind of stuff. And we need to spread that out over our whole congregations. We need to spread out that kind of, of teaching and discipleship and mentoring. Time, energy, effort. It's hard work. If you came to these meetings and you think the discipleship was going to be a good idea that was going to make church easier... I'm sorry to disappoint you. It might be the opposite, but it'll be more rewarding. It'll make church infinitely more rewarding to you.
How do you invest that time, energy, and effort? Maybe over coffee, maybe over breakfast, or a hike, or a campfire. You want to find the gold in your spiritual family. Here's some things you're going to have to communicate. You're going to have to communicate to them that you're committed for the long haul. That you believe that they have value that they can bring into the body of Christ. You're going to have to communicate that mistakes are not the end of the world, but they're a stepping stone to learning. You're going to have to communicate to them that finding gold in the life of other human beings is worth more than anything else in the world. And then, once you've communicated that, then you'll be able to communicate. You'll be able to talk, and they'll be able to listen. But until we communicate with them that we are committed to them and that we find them valuable and that we love them and we're not going to give up on them, even if it gets tough, then we can actually, then our words can start to make a difference. We can use the social and the physical to initiate the spiritual. Just study the woman at the well and how Jesus takes that physical interaction and just moves that right into a a spiritual engagement. I'm probably... I'm probably too devious of a person. I don't know. But I play ball with the young men in our area to build relationships with them so that I can sit down with them and talk about spiritual things later. I like playing ball, and that's fun. But I have an ulterior motive. What are the things you enjoy doing? Are there other people in your congregation that enjoy doing those things? Maybe they're not exactly in your peer group. Get together with them and do those things and engage with them. And maybe initiate and see, see how open they are to discussing spiritual things. And you might end up with something that's so beautiful. I bet you will. It is beautiful. It is beautiful to interact with people. I taught Sunday school class for quite a few years at Bethany. One of the young men that I connected with very closely there. And we have a a wonderful relationship. He's been such an encouragement to me as I see him blossom and and follow God. And you know what he's doing? He's mentoring my son. And I say, praise the Lord. That's what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about people who are investing in the lives of other people in the church. And through that investment, people are learning about God and about who he is and about how church is a place of enjoyment. It's a place of encouragement. It's a place of growth. And we need to have those social interactions. I really appreciate Brother Dan and I talked about this a little bit over over lunch. And we need to have those social interactions, but they need to not be the end. We don't just want a social gathering. We want a gathering of people who are growing spiritually. And so we have to use those connections to go beyond the social interactions that we have. How about the monument? Maybe you're wondering about that. When you come to a stop sign, it says, it says here in this passage that monuments are going to be a sign. When you come to a stop sign, do you stop for the sign? Or do you stop for the people who are going the other way? You stop for the people who are going the other way. 
the sign is a marker that tells you that you better stop because there's people going the other way. What's most significant is the fact that people are going the other way. And the sign is there to help you to recognize that deeper truth. And I talked about the necessity of culture, the necessity of culture in relation to belief. And the things that we do as conservative people in obedience to Christ, those things are signs to us of the deeper spiritual truths. You look at any, anything that you know is like communion or baptism or any of that stuff, those are things that we do, but they are signs to us that tell us about a deeper spiritual truth. So when the Bible tells us to do something and we make an application to that, that application is a sign that we should be looking for something beyond the sign. We should be looking for what is this telling us? Let me give you an illustration of that. I was sitting around a campfire with a group of young men and all of them left but one. And he brought up a question about veiling. Women's woman's veiling. And I said, yeah, you know, let's talk about it. And, I mean, he started throwing out stuff, and I was just, he was throwing out stuff, and I just wasn't sure where this was going to go. And as he was saying all this stuff, the Holy Spirit spoke to me and said, the reason that you're having this discussion is because you have the practice. You see, in the churches where they don't have the practice, they don't have the discussion. The veiling to us is a sign of something deeper in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Is it important that we follow? Is it important that we have the sign? Absolutely. Absolutely. But it is the beginning point. That sign is not an ending point. It's a beginning point for us to do discipleship. So when someone comes to you and they have questions about why you do the things you do, you lead them to the deeper truth. You see, in verse 20 it says, When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and statutes and judgments? He's coming to you and asking you a question. What are you going to tell him? And he's, he's opening the door. When he comes to you and asks you a question, he, he's just opening up. He's throwing wide the door for you to give him some Good truth. Don't disappoint him. Give him some good truth. Give him real answers from the Word of God about why you do the things you do. And connect them with the deep spiritual truth and what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Because you see it says later in that verse, in verse 21 through 25. Maybe I better go straight to the, to the passage here. Then shall you say to your son, We were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand, and the Lord showed great signs and wonders before our eyes, great and severe against Egypt, Pharaoh and all his household. He brought us out from there that he might bring us in to give us the land which he swore to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good always that he might preserve us alive as it is this day. Then shall it be righteousness for us if we are careful to observe all these commandments before the Lord our God as He has commanded us. So when your son comes and asks you, what mean all these, you know, what, what, what does it, what's all this stuff mean? You say, I met a God. I met a person who changed my life. 
He took me from being a slave in my sinful past and brought me to a place where I'm a son in a land of plenty. And you always take those questions back to God, back to the person, so that He can know the person, so that you lead Him to the place when He has questions in His life. And i got to say this for my parents. When I came to the point in my life where I said, where am I going, heaven or hell? I don't know. Who has the answers? My parents told me, not directly, but indirectly through their lives, they told me, it's Jesus Christ. And I went to the Gospels, and I started reading the Gospels. I read through the Gospels about four times in three months. With a terrible burden to my heart that I had to have the answer to where I was going. And Jesus gave me the answer. And we need to take people back to the answer. Jesus calls us to make disciples. Is it your desire to follow Him? Eve was drawn away from God through her desire. If our desire is not for God, we will not be following Him. We will not be going after Him. And neither will we be able to really show Him to other people. May God bless you as a congregation as you seek to walk with God and show others who He is. God bless you. Shall I have a song?